Listen, thanks everybody very much. Um, when I was a teacher some years ago, the period that no one wanted to have was the period right after lunch, right? That's when you, and I, I was lecturing in philosophy, like Hegel and Kant, you know, it was difficult to keep people in. I hope uh, my topic today, which really is, is sainthood, it's sanctity, what makes us holy. Hope that keeps you uh, a little bit more awake. Um, so, Christianity in the earliest days was described not as a religion, not as a uh, doctrinal program. It was described as a way. Look back in the Acts of the Apostles, those who followed this way of Jesus. I've always loved that expression. A path. I think if you read the great spiritual teachers in our tradition, you see Christianity articulated as the walking of three basic paths. I'm not claiming any originality in this. I'm just uh, commenting on the great masters. I think Christianity displays itself as walking on three paths. First one, find the center. Second one, know that you're a sinner. Third one, realize your life is not about you. So find the center, know you're a sinner, realize your life is not about you. I think all of us walk those paths, and it's not as though we just do them, you know, one, two, three. They overlap in the course of our lives, and sometimes we find ourselves much more on one than the other two. But I think all three are present, and all three articulate something really basic about being a Christian. So I want to just mention something in this talk about the three ways or paths, okay? So let's begin with the first one, to find the center. I was a doctoral student in um, lovely Paris, France for three years, and um, I remember very vividly the day I arrived in Paris. It was June the 12th, 1989, and I'd never been to uh, France before. I had my high school and college French and, you know, some background, but I'd never really lived in a French-speaking country. This is before um, internet and cell phones. I had the address of my house on a piece of paper in my wallet. It's, so I, I got there, I dropped off my bags, and I was, I was jet-lagged, and I was tired, and I was sort of frightened. But I made my way down uh, to Notre Dame Cathedral. So I, I roughly knew where that was, and uh, went up the main aisle, and I came to the transept of Notre Dame, and I turned left, and I looked up at the North Rose window, which I think is the most magnificent rose window in the whole uh, Christian world. This, you know, magnificent wheel of, of light and color. And I stood there, no kidding, for about a half hour. And then, every single day, between that day, June 12th, and when I went home for Christmas, like December 20th or something, every single day, I went down to that spot and looked up at that rose window. And ever since then, uh, the rose windows have played a very important role in my own uh, spirituality, in my teaching, and in my writing. And as I meditate upon them, I think the rose windows are wonderful evocations of this first path. Why do we find them so uh, compelling? Uh, beautiful, of course, yes. But see, those who made them were trying to teach us a spiritual lesson. If you look at all the rose windows, right, these great wheels, without exception, in the center of the window is a depiction of Christ. So in that north row is at Notre Dame, right, Our Lady, so that you see Mary, but if you look very closely, on her lap is the Christ child. So at the very center of the window is Jesus. Then, circling around that center in these ordered harmonic patterns, are all the other elements of the window. And they're connected by various devices, like by spokes, to the center. They're evocative of this first path. When Christ is the center of our lives, unambiguously, right, without competition, he's the center. Then the wager is, that the rest of our lives tend to fall into harmony around that center. 
So think of the, the French call them medaillons, the medallions, the little images in the rose window. Think of those as evocative of, of all the elements that make up you. There's your mind, and there's your will, and there's your passions, and there's your family life, and your private life, and your, your sexual life, etc., etc. All that makes you up. If Christ is the center, then everything else in your life will be connected harmonically to that center. You know, that rose that I'm talking about, the North Rose window, was going up at the same time that Thomas Aquinas was in Paris. Thomas Aquinas said the beautiful occurs at the intersection of three things. Integritas, consonancia, and claritas, Thomas said. Integritas means wholeness, right? That, that it's all about one thing, that the whole of an object or a face or, or an event holds together. Secondly, consonancia means this harmony, that everything, everything contributes to the overall design. Everything is in, in uh, sync with everything else. Claritas means radiance, glow, or shine. When those three things come together, Aquinas said, we say, ah, beautiful. And that's exactly what happens when we look at the rose window. We see those three elements and we say, how beautiful. See, but here's the point. When... Christ is the center of your life. Your soul becomes beautiful. It has integritas. You know, the great philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said a saint is someone whose life is about one thing. That's a very cool little definition, I think. Because it doesn't mean that the saint is living a monotonous life. I mean, look at the saints across the centuries. I mean, anything but monotonous. But the saint is gathered. Everything in the saint centers on the, on the call of Christ. Consonancia, that everything that makes you up holds together as one. You know that image um, C.S. Lewis used it of the ships sailing in convoy? under the direction of a commander. And the ships are kind of side by side, and they're sailing together well. Good. Doing their mission on, on point. If even one little ship gets out of line, and you say, oh, no big deal, just one ship is off kilter. Well, before you know it, it'll bump into the next ship, which will bump into the next one, and the convoy's harmony is lost, right? So, Lewis said... Our lives are meant to be harmonic, marked by consonancia, everything contributing to the overall purpose. We can tend to say, and I'll get to this when I talk about sin, we can tend to say very easily, oh, you know, I'm, I'm doing great. 95% of my life is together. There is one little area I know that's really crazy, but I'm not going to worry about that. Well, good luck with that plan, right? I mean... I found that over and over again in my own pastoral work. It's that one area of life that's off kilter that can lead to the disharmony within the self. And then you'll finally claritas, shine or radiance or glow. You know, it's not accidental at all that we tend to depict the saints as illumined figures. We put halos around them. I mean, I think it's, I was going to say, don't take it literally, although in some cases, I think people with great spiritual vision have noticed just that kind of luminosity around the saints. Remember the accounts of Mother Teresa or Padre Pio? But see, generally I would say the halo is a symbol of the claritas of the saint. It's the radiance of a harmonious and integrated life. Find the center and your life will fall into harmony around it. Oh, Father, my life, I'm just a mess. I think if people have seen me over the years or in confession, Father, I don't know, my, my life is just a mess. It's just a jumble. Well, remember the talk from this morning. What do you worship? Right? What's of highest value to you? What's at the center of your life? 
If it's not Christ, your life will fall into this disharmony. It will disintegrate. You know, turn it around the other way. Um, this is many years ago. I was counseling a young guy who came to see me, and, and he was, he was kind of lost, had never really pursued a, a religious, you know, sensibility. He said, I, I'm kind of lost. And, Father, could you sort of teach me a few things about prayer, he asked me. So I, I didn't really know him at all, uh, and I, I just taught him a few basic things about kind of centering prayer and the Our Father, and maybe something about the rosary as a way of kind of gathering one's heart around the Lord. And then off he went. Thanks, you know, thanks for that. So he came back several months later. He said, can I see you again? And he said, he sat down, and he said, um, you know, I, I've got to stop having promiscuous sex. <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you're right about that. Again, I knew nothing about him. He never told me a thing about his life. But what was interesting was he said, I did what you told me. I just started every day doing this these prayer routines and see what was happening was it was knitting him back together it was showing him what was off kilter in his life that maybe his life wasn't too terrible but this part of his life was really off kilter and it was interrupting the harmony so can i suggest to everybody here as a spiritual exercise <laughs> keep that rose window in your mind and say, okay, is everything in my life attached to Christ? Does my mind belong to him? Does my will belong to him? Does my body belong to him? Does my sexual life belong to him? Do my friendships belong to him? How about the entertainment that I pursue? Does that belong to him? You know, one way to look at it, friends, is we speak about Jesus as Lord. And see, we can spiritualize that too easily. Oh, it's nice spiritual term jesus is the lord but see go back to the latin word there dominus jesus dominus right jesus is the lord he's the master of my life really is he totally does he dominate every part of my life you see don't don't read that as, as oppression it's not oppression it's liberation or shift the metaphor, is every part of my life related to him. That's what it means to find the center. Um, you know, that great story of Martha and Mary, uh, I found in my years of preaching <laughs> that it's one of the most aggravating gospels to people. Uh, I think I've gotten more commentary over the years on Martha and Mary, mostly from, from angry women, right? <laughs> that will come up and say some version of, you know, I, it's, it's not really fair. I mean, to Martha, here she is doing all the work, and, and I, I, I'm with her. She's got a, a legitimate complaint. Here's it, Mary goofing around, and I'm doing all the work. But why does Jesus upbraid Martha? You know, so I, I've heard that a lot. Um, here's, I think, the key to that story. I, I don't think, despite a lot of centuries of commentary, I don't think it's primarily about the difference between the contemplative life and the active life. You know, that Mary's the contemplative at the feet of the Lord, and Martha's fussing around with all his activity, and Jesus prefers contemplatives to active people. It's a way it's been read, but I, I don't think that's the heart of it. I, I think the key is in this language. When Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and upset about many things right? Many things. Mary has chosen, and then the Latin here I think is, is lovely in the Vulgate uh, version of the Bible. It says Mary has chosen the unum necessarium, right? The one thing necessary, and she will not be deprived of it. Can I suggest it's not so much about action versus contemplation. It's about the spiritual problem of the one and the many, See, most of us sinners whose lives are kind of disintegrated, we're all over the place, we're scattered, we're anxious and upset, therefore, about many things. Mary, uh, Mary has chosen the unum necessarium, the one necessary thing, namely, ordering her life to Christ. See, then, everybody, then, 
everything else that she would do, including all of her activities, would find their center, would find their ground. Think about your own life in terms of the one and the many. Here's, a, here's an interesting little clue as well. Isn't it interesting that in the Gospels, those possessed by, by the devil speak in the plural. Remember the uh, Capernaum demoniac in Mark's Gospel? He's one person, right? What do you want of us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Isn't that weird? Single person, but speaking in the plural. Or how about the, the Gerasene demoniac? What's your name, Jesus asked. Legion, for there are hundreds of us. Now, we can read that a number of different ways, but I think a very provocative way to read it is, remember that the diabolic, literally, diabolene in Greek, means to scatter, to cast apart, to divide. There are hundreds of us. What do you want of us, Jesus of Nazareth? That's the divided, severed, splintered self. What's Jesus about bringing us back to this harmonizing unity where we find the center? And then see, let your life be as complex as you want. Go everywhere, do everything, complex life, but all of it gathered harmonically like the elements of the rose window. Uh, just one more image from this first path. How could I not use it now in Liverpool? Because it's from uh, John Lennon. Um, but I, I'm going to bracket him just for a second. I, to get to John Lennon, I want to talk about uh, another great wheel from the medieval cathedral so the rose window is one but a second one you find in a lot of the gothic churches is the so-called rota fortune right the wheel of fortune and the wheel of fortune if you can imagine it you know up here great wheel and at the top of the wheel of fortune there's a um a king and he says regno right? i'm reigning and then as the wheel turns over here you have a king having lost his crown he says, Regnavi, right? I have reigned. Then the wheel keeps turning. At the very bottom is a little pauper. He says, Sum sine regno. I mean, I've got no power. Then up here, on that side of the wheel, you've got this kind of ladder climber coming up. He says, Regnabo, I shall reign. Right? So the point is, that's life. Am I right, everybody? That's life. It's a wheel of fortune. Sometimes you're up. Think of the regno. It could be power. It could be money. It could be fame. It could be health. It could be whatever. Sometimes we're like kings. And you know, to be honest, there's not a lot we can do about it. A, a lot of it's just dumb luck. Then other times in life, it's like, no, I'm losing it. I, I'm, I'm losing what I have. Wealth, power, pleasure, whatever. And then, don't we all know it, every single person in this room Sometimes we're at the bottom of the wheel of fortune. It just, it, it, it just turned on me, and I'm, I'm out of power, money, fame, wealth, whatever. And then other times in life, I'm coming back up. I'm, I'm making a comeback. All right, that's life. What did, I think of Frank Sinatra, right? I'm riding high in April, shot down in May, right? That's life. And we all know it. The wheel of fortune turns. Now, in the center of the wheel of fortune, so think right smack in the middle of the wheel, is a depiction of Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, here's the beautiful spiritual point. Don't live your life on the rim of the wheel. Where most of us live, most of the time, is on the rim of that darned wheel. Fussing about getting to the top in wealth, power, pleasure, whatever it is. And a lot of it's out of our control. Um, are we really happy when we're at the top of the wheel of fortune? 
No, because we know any second it could turn and I'll become Mr. Regnavi. Or on the other side of me, trust me, there's somebody climbing up the wheel to knock me off the top, right? The point is, every point on the rim of the wheel is a point of anxiety. Sound familiar? Now, fellow sinners in this room, right? That's what most of us are most of the time. We're fussing around on the rim of the wheel, and it's making us crazy and, and unhappy. Rather, move yourself to the center of the wheel. In Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ, who links us to the infinity and eternity of God. Christ who loves us no matter what. And grounded in that central place, we can do what? Watch the wheel as it turns, right? Hey, I'm up. Yeah, I know, it's not going to last. Hey, I'm at the bottom. Yeah, I know, and it probably won't last. Hey, I'm making my comeback. Yeah, good for you, and you might get to the top again, but it's not going to last. Right? But when you're living in the center, you live in that point that the great spiritual masters call indifference. Don't read it. I know in English it's got a negative quality. Um, Indifferencia in St. Ignatius uh, Spanish. But I'm, I'm indifferent, Lord, whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm famous or notorious, whether I'm loved or hated. It doesn't matter to me because I'm grounded in this central place. The Greek uh, spiritual masters talk about apatheia, and uh, you know, apathy is a bad word in English. But what they meant was, I'm divorced from my feelings about the rim of the wheel. I'm in Christ, <laughs> and, and so I'm apathetic whether I'm up or down, left or right, spinning around. Okay, here's why I mentioned John Lennon. Now, as you well know, John Lennon had a kind of ambiguous relationship to religion, you know, going back to the Beatles are bigger than Jesus and all that in the mid-60s. And then, you know, a song like Imagine, which is a lovely melody, but, I mean, terrible lyrics from a religious perspective. Imagine there's no heaven and there's no God and all that. So, I mean, John had an up-and-down relationship with religion. But you know what's really interesting to me? In a number of biographies of John Lennon, they say that in the 70s, like just the years before he died, he was getting very interested again in religion and was actually watching religious preachers and all that on TV. Now, I don't know what was going on in his mind and heart, but do you remember the last album, Double Fantasy, he did just before he died? And do you remember the song, Watching the Wheel? And John Lennon says in that song, I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I really love to watch them roll. I'm no longer riding on the merry-go-round. Well, you know, when I heard that, I thought, man, I, I don't know again. I can't tell you for sure what's going on in his mind and heart. But you could read that very much along these lines. I'm just sitting here watching the wheel go round and round. I love to watch it roll because I'm no longer riding on it. Now, think of that wheel of fortune again. Talk about someone at the top of the wheel of fortune. When John Lennon, little kid from Liverpool, was what, 24 years old? Was there anyone more famous in the world? I mean, he wasn't the richest guy in the world, but he had, he had, he had access to huge amounts of money, power, extraordinary cultural power. I mean, he was just traveling. The, the whole world came to see him. Wealth, pleasure, power, honor. I'm thinking of the way the Beatles were honored all over the world. What was it like for John Lennon to be at the top of the Wheel of Fortune? Let me give you a little hint. Help. <laughs> I need somebody help. Not just anybody help. Won't you please, please help me? Right? John Lennon, right? He wrote that song about 1965, when he was at the top of the Wheel of Fortune. And they say when he went into the studio to record it, it was a bit of a Dylan-esque sort of lament. That's how he wrote it. And that would fit the lyrics. 
But of course, he's a Beatle, so they turn it in, they go, help, I need somebody, help, this happy song. But the lyrics, that's someone at the top of the Wheel of Fortune. Now, think of John Lennon. Beatles break up, you know, and, and loses a lot of his cultural you know, cachet and, and influence. Then, mid-1970s, talk about the bottom of the Wheel of Fortune. Remember John Lennon, The Lost Weekend? He was drinking too much, and he had left his wife, and his life kind of bottomed out. And then at the very end of his life, he was kind of making a comeback. You know, the album was successful, and he was back in the game. And I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I really love to watch them roll. I'm no longer riding on the merry-go-round. See, did he come to see something, I wonder? about riding on the merry-go-round of the wheel of fortune. And we'd be able to name as Christians what it is all about is finding that center where Christ dwells. Okay? I'm going to go on. So that's enough on, on path number one. Um, you know, actually, I said a little bit this morning about uh, path two, really, talking about, about sin as bad praise. So remember all that from this morning, and I'll fill that into my talk right now. Uh, that's, I think, a great image for um, sin. Uh, and also the thing about the bright lights. Uh, see, the Christian spiritual life, everybody, never begins with sin. Uh, that's a sign that we've, we've taken a bad step. Uh, and all kinds of bad isms, uh, dualism and, and uh, Gnosticism and, and um, uh, Platonism and all, uh, can come from beginning the project with sin. Puritanism. You don't begin with sin. Begin with grace. You begin with grace. Find the center. Right? Christ has broken into your life and now wants you to, to gather your life around him. But see, in the light of grace, I do indeed realize that I am a sinner. Here's something uh, from Chesterton, appropriate to quote here in England. G.K. Chesterton said, We're all in the same boat and we're all seasick. <laughs> And then he also said, oh, there are saints in my religion. But that just means a man who really knows he's a sinner. That's good, isn't it? Who's a saint? Someone that really knows he's a sinner. How often in the lives of the saints, it's the breakthrough of grace that enables them to see what's off kilter in them. You know, John Newton's great, uh, amazing grace. We all know the story of the breakthrough of grace into this man's life that led him from being a, a slave trader of the worst sort to being a man of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, he knew he was a wretch not before grace, but after grace. That's the point. It's the light that reveals to us what's off a kilter in us. That's why I, I always say, you know, as the Advent season approaches now in a couple of months, and we all sing the familiar hymn. But man, we've got to move into the language of that hymn and not just let it float through our minds. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. That's tremendously powerful if you let it sink in. I, I'm okay and you're okay. Well, then Christianity is a waste of time. Then we don't need grace. No, no, the, the better thing is, is I, I'm, I'm like, a, I'm like a, a captive held for ransom, meaning I'm helpless. And so all I can do is say, oh, come, come, Emmanuel, God with us, ransom captive Israel. That's someone who knows he's a sinner, who stands, therefore, in need of grace, you know? Um, let me just give you a couple of images now to fill out this picture of what it means to walk the second path. The Woman at the Well, a story that everyone loves from the Gospel of John. The turning point of that story, I think, is when the Lord says, you come to this well every day and you drink, and you get thirsty again. I want to give you water welling up in you to eternal life. See, at that moment, we're me all of us who read that story or hear it are meant to identify with that woman carrying this heavy jar, every day filling it with water, drinking, getting thirsty again, and having to come back 
Thomas Aquinas said there are four great substitutes for God. Right? He knew with St. Augustine that the heart is wired for God. By the way, that's what we need to teach this culture, everybody in this room. We need to be missionaries of that to our secular culture. The heart is restless till it rests in God. It's the fundamental Christian truth. But, Aquinas said, we tend to find four great substitutes. Wealth, pleasure, power, and honor. Now, it should be familiar to everyone in this room. We're all sinners here. We're all in the same boat. We're all seasick, which means we've all been pursuing these four things. Succumbing to the illusion that, oh, if I just fill myself up with enough of these four things, I'll be happy. If I just get enough wealth, I'll be happy. That's the problem. I'm not wealthy enough. Oh, you know, other people, they got a lot more pleasure in their life than I do. If I just had enough pleasure, I'd be happy. Oh, power. I'm just not powerful enough. If I just got enough power, I'd be happy. Or honor. Nobody appreciates me. What credit do I get? I deserve much more than I, than I have. If only I were honored sufficiently, I'd be happy. Now, why am I saying all that in an angry voice? Because that's what it feels like to be in the grip of that desire, doesn't it? It feels frustrating, and I'll tell you exactly why. We're wired for God, which means the infinite good. Only in God will my soul be at rest, the Bible says. And so when I try to fill up that infinite emptiness with some little finite thing in the world, what's that like? Here's what John of the Cross said. He said, imagine this infinite cavern, right? That's our hunger for God. Now, take wealth, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill it up with wealth. What's that like? No. Oh, oh, I'm still unhappy. I must need more of wealth. I'll get, I'll be Bill Gates. I'll be, who's now, Jeff Bezos now is the richest man in the world. I'll be Jeff Bezos. I'll, I'll put a billion, I'll put $400 billion. Am I right? See, because it's an infinite cavern. Nothing in the world can fill it. Now, same with pleasure. You know, you, you get a little pleasure in your life, and, and you get a buzz from that. And, and so, oh, that's great. But then it wears off. It has to. We're not meant for that. Oh, oh, I need more pleasure. I need, I need more pleasure. All the pleasure in the world. It doesn't, see, and, and, and what happens is I get crazy, frustrated, and finally addicted. Again, am I right, fellow sinners? See, we all know this story. We've all been down this road, or stay with the metaphor, we've all gone to that well. We've drunk, and we've gotten thirsty again. Right. Same with power. Same with honor. You never get enough of them, because they're not designed to make you happy. Power makes you powerful. I'll, I'll give you that. Honor makes you honored, I guess. I'll give you that. It doesn't make you happy. Wealth makes you wealthy, sure. It doesn't make you happy. The woman at the well. I know the pattern you got here. I know how frustrating it is. I want to give you the water that wells up in you to eternal life. See, what's that? That's now filling your soul with God. Now, here's a little trick, everybody. It's spiritual physics. And, and like a lot of laws of, of physics, it's, it's counterintuitive. Here's how it works, though. Okay, Filling the soul with God alone is going to make us happy. True. But who's God? God is love. Right? Therefore, it's only by filling the soul with love that we are filled up. It's only by filling the soul with self-emptying love that we're filled up. Do you see why it's so hard to get this right? And why we all succumb to the wealth, pleasure, power, honor project all the time. Now, can I shift to a, um, an Old Testament uh, metaphor here? Do you know that great story from the first book of Kings 
about Elijah and the priests of Baal. Remember, Elijah's the one prophet of Yahweh left. But there are 450 priests of Baal. Okay, so it always goes, right? The priests and prophets of the false gods, they're always thick on the ground. That's never changed. So Elijah challenges them, all right? You guys build the altars to your gods. I'll build one to, to God, and, and we'll, we'll see what happens, right? So they build the altars to the Baals, and then in that beautiful, funny story, as they, they pray and they cajole and they dance and they hop around the altars, nothing happens. At noon, it says Elijah mocked them. Well, where are they? Uh, they're, they're gods. Maybe they're on vacation. Maybe they're taking a nap. And uh, my friends who know Hebrew a lot better than I do say that the Hebrew even insinuates maybe they're, they're in the John. I mean, maybe I, I don't know where they are, but they're not responding to you. And then, beautifully, the story adds that in their frenzy, the priests of Baal slash themselves, right, until the, they, the blood flows. Then uh, Elijah prays to God, and the fire falls, consumes the sacrifice. Elijah wins. Okay. What I want you to see, though, is that this is much more than just a kind of macho, hey, my God's better than yours story. It's making the point I've been making more laboriously. The priests of Baal and their altars, think of them as all the ways we engage in false worship. Think of those, imagine four of them, wealth, pleasure, power, honor. <laughs> how much time, now be honest with yourself, how much time have you spent in your life hopping around one of those stupid altars? Am I right? I mean, I'm guilty as anybody in this room. Hopping around those stupid altars and praying and cajoling and dancing and nothing happens because we're not meant for those things. We're meant for God. And then, then, at the limit, in my frustration of heart, I start wounding myself. Anyone in this room that's ever wrestled with an addiction knows exactly what I'm talking about. Whether you're addicted to, to booze or to drugs or to sex or to wealth, pleasure, power, or honor, it's the same dynamic. Is We now get in a frenzy, a self-destructive frenzy, trying to worship those stupid, empty gods. Listen, who can never answer with fire? Who's the one who can answer with fire? Is the Lord God. See, and, and so there's the story of, of path two, is to realize that you're a sinner. You know you're a sinner. You, you know you've hopped around those stupid altars. You know you're like the woman at the well that's come again and again and still gotten thirsty accept the amazing grace that wants to come into your life and wants to give you a new center, a new focus of worship. Okay, I'll bring you to a close pretty quickly with path number three. So find the center. In light of that experience, you know you're a sinner. Name, name your attachments, everybody. You know, John of the Cross had this wonderful definition of an attachment, our greatest spiritual teacher. He said, an attachment is anything in this world, including your own life, that you're convinced you can't live without. Isn't that good? Anything in this world, including your own life, that you think you can't live without, that's an attachment. Remember when Ignatius of Loyola, who was very interested in this theme of attachment and detachment, they said, what would you do? if they suppressed your Jesuit order that you've given your whole life to, that's the, that's the center of your life, that's the apple of your eye, what would you do? And he said, I'd need 15 minutes before the Blessed Sacrament, and I'd be fine. <laughs> Good. Anything in this world, even your, your most treasured, cherished projects that you think you can't live without, that's an attachment. Identify it. That's what it means to know you're a sinner. Okay. Last one. I'll do this in shorter compass, I promise. Realizing your life is not about you. I love that little phrase. I got it from Richard Rohr originally, but I think you see it in all the great spiritual teachers. Realize your life is not about you. 
It's your life. It's just not about you. It's about something that stretches infinitely beyond you. You know, in the um, initiation rituals of primal peoples, we find this commonality in, in almost any culture. I'll talk about the rituals around the young men, because it's clearer there. The young man is uh, ripped out of his, uh, his uh, domestic life. He's, the men of the village will take him away from the comfort of his home. Think of a, a baby or a child. I mean, appropriately, their life is about them. We have to protect them and sustain them. So there's a lot of self-focus. But in adolescence, that boy is ripped out of that comfortable space. He's then usually marked or scarified in some way, like a tooth is knocked out or he's cut on the cheek or he's circumcised or something, that they mark on his body the difficulty and pain of life. And then he's initiated into the stories and rituals and traditions of his people. And then he's sent, depending on the culture, to the edge of the tundra or the jungle or, or the forest, given a few provisions, and then told to make his way. And to return only when he has some communication with the higher spiritual power. And again, we can find this in, in, in the cultures around the world. But what I'm finding so fascinating there is the young man is being told now in a, in a ton of different ways, your life is not about you. Your life is situated in the context of your family, of your tribe, of the history of your people, of a nature that surrounds you, and finally, of a spiritual order that is meant to command you. And see, only when you get that in your bones are you capable, really, of returning usefully to the community. It's an adventure of true self-discovery. Not this egotistic thing we're hung up with today of I invent my own life. I mean, that's the opposite momentum. You see what I mean? That's the opposite of the direction we should be going. Your life isn't about you and your little plans. It's about, finally, God's plans for you. I love something in the, uh, in the Western tradition, the distinction between, I'll put it in Latin because it, it sounds cooler, the pusilla anima and the magna anima. Um, you know, our, our word, it's a, it's a weird English word, but pusillanimous, that person's pusillanimous. It means literally small-souled. Small-souled. Magna anima, someone that's magnanimous, right, is someone who's great-souled. To me, that's a very um, um, helpful illustration. The small soul. St. Augustine said sin is to be incurvatus in se to be caved in around oneself. Isn't that good? That's the small soul. My little plans, my little preoccupations, my little fears. The magna anima is the anima, the soul, connected to truth and to beauty and to goodness and finally to God. The great soul. You know, it's interesting. Both um, um, Latin has a, a Sanskrit root, doesn't it? So it's, it's no accident that magna anima sounds like mahatma. You know, so we, Mohandas Gandhi was called Mahatma Gandhi, the great soul Gandhi. It meant the same thing. The third path is moving out of the little musty, stuffy confines of the pusilla anima and discovering the great space of the magna anima. You know, I think I, in my talk this morning I quoted that line from Ephesians. There's a power already at work in you that can do infinitely more than you can ask or imagine. See, that's what I'm talking about. What I can ask or imagine. I mean, how bore me to death with what I can ask and imagine, right? There's a power, though, thank God, already at work in me. That's the Holy Spirit that can do infinitely more than I can ask or imagine. Surrender to that power and you'll realize your life is not about you. I think when I was um, about 15 or 16, I saw Man for All Seasons for the first time. I saw the movie before I read the play, uh, the great uh, Paul Schofield, right, who died not too many years ago, uh, the great Shakespearean actor playing Thomas More. And so many scenes, you know, beguiled me. But one that's it's a little quieter, but has really stayed in my heart. 
Remember um, the man that eventually does more in, it's called Richard Rich, who was a real historical figure, but what a name, you know, if you're reflecting on a spiritual theme, Richard Rich. And that's what Richard Rich wanted, was to be rich and to be famous. He's a, a recent graduate, and he's hanging around Thomas More because he wants to be among the glitterati of the court of Henry VIII. And he's after More to give him a big job, right? Richard Rich, he wants to fill up his ego with all the wealth, pleasure, power, and honor he can. So he pesters More, pesters More, and finally one day Thomas More says, Richard, I have a job for you. You do? And More says, yes, there's an opening in the local school. And Richard Rich, you can just tell, I mean, here's this big dreamer, you know, talk about the wheel of fortune. And uh, he just faced his fellow. I mean, a teacher in a local school? Are you kidding? And Moore says, you'd be a good teacher, maybe even a great one. And Richard Rich says, and if I were, who would know it? And there's the voice of the, of the frightened pusilla anima, right? And Moore's great answer in Man for All Seasons is, yourself, your friends, your pupils, God, not a bad public, that. <laughs> see, but that's the whole, and see, in many ways, I think the play turns on that little scene. Because, see, Thomas More did have wealth, pleasure, power, and honor. As the movie opens, he's in this great manor house in Chelsea, he's the, he becomes Lord Chancellor of England, he's, he's wealthy, he's famous, well-known writer, etc. Got it all. By the end of the movie, that's all stripped away, every bit of it. But what he's doing is playing for the one public that matters. He's playing for God, right? That's the role he's playing. I die the king's good servant, but God's first. And see, Richard Rich goes just the opposite way. He's got nothing in the beginning. By the end of the story, remember it says, and he became Lord Chancellor of England. He had all that stuff. But by God, he played for the wrong audience. It profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world. <laughs> but for whales, remember the famous line in that story? No offense to Welshmen out there. Um, but that's the point. That's the point that the Lord himself is making. You know, I mean, we spend our whole life running after wealth, pleasure, honor, and power. It's a waste of time. You know the line from uh, Joseph Campbell, the comparative uh, mythologist? He said, here's the tragedy. Most people find that they've climbed the ladder of success only to discover it's up against the wrong wall. <laughs> but isn't that true? I mean, you reach a certain age and I spent my whole life climbing up that stupid ladder. And it's, I was meant to climb that ladder, you know? That's why in Jesus' great parables, you know, the pearl of great price and the treasure buried in the field, sell everything you've got and buy that when you find it. When you find what God wants, when you find that your life's not about you, then, then surrender all the preoccupations you have. Who needs them? An image I love from uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, the great 20th century uh, Catholic theologian, uh, much loved by John Paul II and uh, Pope Benedict. He distinguished between the ego drama and the theodrama. Right? What's the ego drama? Well, that's the drama that I'm writing producing, directing, and above all, starring in. <laughs> it's the Robert Barron Show on the road in Liverpool. Here's my uh, supporting cast around me. See, but most of us sinners live our lives that way. It's the ego drama. How am I, how's my ego doing? How's my ego being projected? How's my ego being protected? How's my ego being praised? But Balthazar says, forget the ego drama. Bore, bo again, bore me to death with the ego drama. What matters is the Theo drama. That's the drama that God is writing, God is producing, God is directing. And yeah, you've got a role in it. You sure do. And finding it is everything. But it might not be anywhere in the ballpark of what you think your role is in the ego drama. Who cares? Who cares? Find what God wants you to do. And then do that with all your heart. And trust me, you'll find much deeper joy in that move. Just one last uh, observation, then I'll stop. Um, there, there's a spiritual writer named uh, Jean-Pierre de Caussade. And Jean-Pierre de Caussade is not one of the kind of great 
figures like John of the Cross or you know Meister Eckhart. Or, but he's a guy who had one really good idea, and he said it over and over and over again. He's one of those people. But but it's a really good idea. And here's it. Here it is. He said, "Everything that happens to you is, in some sense, the will of God." Now, what he meant was, it's right out of Thomas Aquinas, what he meant was either directly or indirectly. Either God is directly desiring it for you or God is at least permitting it, right? Everything that happens is either directly or indirectly the will of God. Our being here right now, the will of God? Yeah, you bet. Aquinas says God's providence extends to particulars his typically laconic way of saying God's involved in everything. If there are some Americans here, there was a question in the old catechism. It was a Q&A format, right? And the question was, where is God? And the answer was, everywhere. Now, can I suggest, in light of Jean-Pierre de Cossade, your whole life will change if you come to accept that. Where is God? Everywhere. Everywhere. Here? Yes. Has God brought us together? Yeah. Whatever happens to you is in some sense, either directly or permissively, the will of God. I would suggest to everybody, your whole life will change if you begin to move into that space. Stop directing your life ego-dramatically and start thinking about it theodramatically. My life is not about me. It's about cooperating with what God has placed in front of me, what God's purpose is for me. So you find the center. Get your life gathered around Christ. Know you're a sinner. Name your attachments. Name those false forms of worship. And then realize your life is not about you. It's about your participation in this great divine adventure. Walking those three paths means you become a saint, which is the whole purpose of the church. Listen, God bless you, everybody. Thanks again for having me. (laughs) 